Okay, so our world as we know it is going through some difficult times these days. All throughout scripture, you will repeatedly find three types of people that are described. The wise, the foolish, and the evil. Wise are those who follow the ways of God and their lives reflect the moral teachings of the Bible. In short, wise people live and treat people the way that Jesus did. You want to be a wise person. And because we all are created in God's image, sometimes you will actually find biblical principles and wisdom being lived out by people who don't even claim to know God. Next, you will find foolish people in this world. These people make poor decisions that are typically focused on gratifying immediate desires of their heart and their cravings, and that their choices ultimately not only impact their world, but also the world of the people around them. It's easy for an average everyday person to walk the lines between wisdom and foolishness on a variety of areas within our lives. For example, you might be wise in your relationships, but you might also be foolish with your money and so on. Now, you might be thinking, John, what does this actually have to do with end times? Well, that brings me to the third type of person in the world, evil. Evil has demonic and satanic spiritual roots, and it comes into play when we see the horrific things happening around the world. Evil is the epitome of opposition against the will of God and his principles. When somebody is assaulted or raped or murdered, that action cannot be described as foolishness, but rather pure evil. And church, because we live in a fallen, broken world, we must acknowledge that evil still exists. Satan is real, and where Satan exists, evil is present. For believers, this is actually the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. See, on October 7th, 2023, Hamas terrorists killed an estimated 1,200 Jews, making it the largest Jewish attack since the Holocaust. To give you a comparison, we lost almost 3,000 people on 9-11 to a terrorist attack. Now, the U.S. has 330 million people. Israel has roughly 7.1 million people. If the U.S. experienced the same percentage of loss as Israel just did back in October, that would have equated to roughly 56,000 people who would have died. Not to mention, Hamas also took hostages, beheaded people, raped women and children, and tortured many others. They are now hiding their rockets, ammunitions, and military behind, within, and underneath hospitals, schools, and other heavily populated civilian areas. Hamas not only wants Jews to die, but also Palestinians. When people die, Hamas wins. And that's because Hamas is pure evil. The word has Arabic roots and has an Arabic acronym, which is why they gave themselves that name. And in Arabic, the word itself actually means zeal or strength. But did you know that the word Hamas also has biblical and Hebrew roots as well? The Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. It's used to describe evil and demonic spirits in the Bible. For example, the people during the time of Noah, you know, the ones that were wiped out because of their evilness, they were wiped out by God because they were people of Hamas. The hatred of Hamas for the Jews can date all the way back to Genesis, in which Abraham had a promised son, which really fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. His son was named Isaac. And this son he had with his wife, Sarah. 
But before he had Isaac, he tried to fulfill the plan on his own by having a son named Ishmael with a woman named Hagar. It was prophesied then that the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael would fight, and they continue doing so today. Israel originally occupied the land that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, which is roughly 4,000 years ago. However, they've been scattered around the world and oppressed ever since, really since the Babylonian exile back in 586 BC, and all the way until they were reinstated officially as a nation after World War II and 1948. That's 15, no, not 15, that's 2,500 years, including the time of Jesus and the beginning of the church in which Israel was not its own sovereign state. So just after the time of Jesus and a few decades after the temple was destroyed in 135 AD, it is historically documented that the Roman emperor Hadrian squashed a Jewish rebellion and to retaliate against the Jewish people, this Roman emperor renamed their area where they lived Palestinia, which was Latin for the Philistines, an early enemy of the Jewish people. Think David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. So people who lived in that land since 135 AD were called Palestinians. So both of Jewish descent and descendants of Ishmael. So it was everybody who lived there in what was called Palestine. Now, the religion of Islam didn't actually come onto the scene until 610 AD with the prophet Muhammad. This is 600 years after Jesus and roughly 2,600 years after Abraham. And much of their early religion was centered on war and violence. For example, if you die in battle, you are crowned and given a rich inheritance in heaven with, with many virgins and, and so these things. And so it was about taking power and taking land in the name of Allah. Now, I'm not saying all Muslim people are people of violence. In fact, I've interacted with many who are very kind people. But what I find interesting is that the origin of the religion is connected to violence against the Jewish people. And what we see in terrorist groups today are people who claim all those opposed to Allah should die as pagans. That's a big difference from Jewish religion and from Christianity. Now, in those religions, people are trying to be converted. Yes, there were some dark days in the history of Jewish wars and Christian crusades, but the actions of Hamas are on a different level. They are not trying to convert people, but instead they view all those opposed to Allah as pagan and that they should die. This is why a peace agreement won't work amongst the nations because it's the ideology that wishes for the Jewish people to be wiped from the face of the earth. How do you negotiate with that? You don't because it's evil and evil must be stopped. Israel is at the center of history throughout the Bible and in Revelation, we read that Israel will have a large part in the end times. So as Christians, we should care about, support, and pray for the people of Israel on a regular basis. Israel sometimes gets painted as a bully, but what's reality is that there are 22 Arab states, there are 52 Muslim states, and only one Jewish state who is only attacking in a war in defense to what's already been happening to them as they've been overthrown and oppressed for thousands of years. It should be noted that in the prophecy found in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, talks about just before the end times, Israel will be surrounded and attacked from all sides without help. 
Now what's interesting here, in that passage, the direction of the countries that bordered Israel at the time equate to where Russia and Iran sit today. So could Russia and Iran group together to attack Israel while the rest of the world watches from the sidelines? That's something we should be paying attention to. And the wars that surround Israel will play a key part in the end times as we know it. And that brings me to today's biggest question. Are we living in the end times? Well, my honest answer to that is this. I don't know. I know that's not a definitive response, but I think we have clues that points generally directionally towards a yes. In other words, I don't know if we're living in the end times, but I think we're very close. I would describe it this way. I think we're in the fourth quarter, but I'm just not sure how many minutes are left on the clock. Or if you're a soccer fan, think of it like we're in stoppage time, but we don't know when the ref is gonna blow his whistle. Let me share with you where this is all coming from. First, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, verses one to three, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This passage tells us that Jesus is preparing a place for Christians and that he's coming back to get us. Next, on the day Jesus ascended to heaven, found in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, which are known as angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, I love that he clarifies this Jesus, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And so while we celebrate the first coming of Jesus known as the holiday Christmas, as Christians, we eagerly hope for and await Jesus' second coming. Third, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead and the Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These passages combine to tell us the truth that Jesus is coming back. Some theologians describe our meeting Jesus in the air as the rapture. This is described in Revelations chapter 4 and 5 which then kicks off the start of the tribulation, that's Revelation chapter 6 to 18, and moves into what's called Jesus's millennium year reign, the final war with Satan. So the apocalypse or Armageddon there, which happens in an instant, he wipes out Satan, and then he finally creates a new heaven and a new earth. And these events are described in Revelation chapters 19 to 22. And while these topics and the various views associated with these topics can be discussed at much greater length, today I want to focus on the signs of the end time and the return of Jesus Christ himself. So when is Jesus coming back? Well, Jesus himself said this in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 33. But concerning that day 
or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So if the angels and Jesus himself don't know when the return's gonna happen, according to Jesus' own words, then there's no way for you nor I to know when Jesus is coming back. The only thing I know for sure, and I know to be true, is that if somebody gives you a specific time and date for when Jesus is gonna return, you can rest assured that Jesus isn't coming back on that date. <laughs> Another interesting fact about Christ's return in scripture is that the Bible teaches that everyone will have access to the gospel before his return. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, the disciples are called to go to the entire world with the good news of the gospel. And then in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, a little bit earlier in the story, we read with Jesus speaking, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Also, at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we get this incredible picture of worship when we read, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Think about this for just a moment. Jesus commanded his disciples to preach the gospel to the entire world. He also told them that he would not return until every nation has heard. And then in heaven, there will be a worship service that includes every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's pretty cool, right? In fact, that's why at Mission Grove, we proudly partner with a mission agency called the Timothy Initiative whose mission is to take the gospel to the entire world with a specific focus on how do we reach unreached people groups. We live in a day and age where reaching the world with the good news of the gospel is actually possible. And I think it's both awesome to be a part of this generation and also a sign that we're near the end times. Okay, so back to the end times. Jesus is coming back and we don't know when. And while we don't know when Jesus is coming back, there are some signs that we can begin to look for that tell us that we're getting close. Here's what Jesus had to say to his disciples in that Mark chapter 13, starting in verse one and working our way through verse 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, look at what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings there are. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here and one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He was actually prophesying about the destruction of the temple. <laughs> and as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, I want to pause there for a second because even the disciples, the early disciples, the first ones to walk with Jesus, were asking him about the end times. And then notice the location. Jesus is having this conversation on the Mount of Olives. 
This is the exact spot where Jesus would ascend in Acts chapter 1, and it's also the exact spot where Jesus will return in the end times. So Jesus goes on to explain the signs of the end times to his disciples, where we pick it back up, starting in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray, that many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand with what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Dr. David Jeremiah wrote about four signs of the end times that comes from this passage, as well as its sister passage found in Matthew chapter 24. I found them to be fascinating and I think you will too. And so here are the four signs of the end times according to the words of Jesus. First, there will be signs of deception. Notice people will be claiming to be God or have direct connection to God. Since Jesus, there have been many who have called themselves prophets who have tried to change scripture and created different religions or versions or cults saying something different than what Jesus spoke and what the Bible teaches. Second, from this passage, we see the sign of disputes among the nations. I think that in the next decade, we will actually see a rise in world conflicts. Think Ukraine and Russia. Think China and Taiwan. Many more conflicts might actually be on the way. A third sign of the end times is a sign of devastation. Every year is marked with natural disasters across this country and around the world. You think earthquakes or hurricanes and tornadoes and with Increased access to media, we're now getting a first-hand look from disasters happening all around the world. Think about it. If something happened across the world years ago, we'd have no idea. But now it seems greater than ever because we have instant access to all the sad things that are happening across with devastation around the world. Now, finally, Jesus says that a sign of the end times is deliverance into tribulation. In other words, as we get closer to the end times, Christians will be persecuted for their faith. And while we haven't faced intense persecution yet here in America, we do live in a culture that growingly seems to oppose the teachings of the Bible. Just last month, I had the honor of attending a missions conference with the Timothy Initiative that I mentioned to you. And I got to hear story after story of Christians on the front lines from around the world who are experiencing real-time persecution for their faith. People being put in prison, their houses being burned down, family being beaten up, kicked out of families. All of these things are happening and they are a sign of the end of days. 
So from this Mark passage, we see four signs of the end times. We see signs of deception. We see signs of disputes among nations. We see signs of devastation. And then we see signs of deliverance into tribulation. Now, these are the words of Jesus, and I believe that we actually see all the things that Jesus spoke about happening today. And I want to share with you one additional passage when it comes to looking for signs at the end times. The Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, as he's writing to his spiritual godson, Timothy, who's leading the church at Ephesus, he writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. to But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Uh, Michigan fans, no, just kidding about that one. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, Heartless, they will be unappeasable, they will be slanderous, they will be without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but yet denying its power. Avoid such people. Now that's a pretty long list, and actually he goes even into further detail throughout that chapter. But if we take the list that Paul describes there, I think you could describe what we actually see in our culture today. So think about this. Are we in the end times? I'm not sure. But the signs point to the fact that we're close. We might not know how much time is left on the clock, but I would definitely say we're in the fourth quarter. So what exactly can we do about it? Why does it matter to us? And what can we do today that impacts our tomorrow? Let me share with you three responses Christians can take today that will help you have a confident and courageous tomorrow. First, as Christians, we need to humble ourselves before God. The fact is that we don't know or control the future. Not knowing should humble us to the foot of the cross. When we are humble before God, we lose our pride and we go to God in prayer. Humility should drive our prayers and our actions. I encourage you to humble yourself before God. And I believe doing so will help lower your anxiety about the future because you can truly let go and then let God carry the weight that is for what's to come. Pride says I'm in control. Humility says God's in control. We need to be ready for what's to come, but we don't need to be alarmed for what's to come. Second, I invite you to trust God with what you don't know. As Christians, we are not called to live in fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Trusting God will allow you to rest at night and then live with power, love, and self-control during the day. Yes, we are in a dark world, but we have with us the light of the world, Jesus himself. First, humble yourself before God. Second, trust God with what you don't know. Third, and finally, obey God with what you do know. Many people will try to come and lead you astray from the word of God. Don't be deceived by their teachings. What actually do we know about God and what do we know as Christians to be true? Well, we know that we live in a fallen world where bad things happen and persecution is possible, where there's wise, foolish, and evil people. We know that Jesus came down to this broken world to provide for us a better way, a way out to ultimately defeat death, sin, and Satan himself. 
And in doing so, when he died on the cross and rose again, he reconciles us to God, giving us love, forgiveness, meaning, and purpose. And we know that Jesus is ultimately coming back to deal with death, sin, and Satan himself once and for all. And every day he waits to come back, he's actually giving an opportunity for someone else to come into a saving relationship with him. Now, as Christians, we know that God is coming back, and we also know that things are going to get worse before they get better. So what do we as Christians do in the meantime? We're told to love God, love people, and to go and make disciples who will also go and make disciples to the ends of the earth until the end of time. Every day we get closer to the end times is actually closer to the return of Christ. This truth should encourage those who are walking through a difficult season or situation right now. Hang on, hold fast, Jesus is coming back. Your difficult season and your struggle is temporary. Also, each day that we have before Jesus returns is another opportunity for us to tell more people about God's love. Until Jesus returns, it's our job to share the good news of salvation with the people around us every single day. So while I don't know what's gonna happen next year, it's an election year. Things could get wild and crazy out there. What I don't know what's gonna happen, what I do know is that God is in control and that he's commanded us to love him, to love others, and to make disciples. So as a church, as we head into the new year, let's focus our attention on humbling ourselves before God, trusting God with what we don't know, and then obeying God with what we do know. It's go time, church. Let's go make a difference for God's kingdom this year. Will you go with me? And will you pray with me right now? Dear Heavenly Father, our world seems dark. Our heart breaks for the loss of life. Loss of life, honestly, on all sides there in this struggle with Hamas and Israel. But specifically, God, we lift up your people, the people of Israel. God, I pray that you would bring healing to their nation that you would give them victory where needed, and they would wipe evil forces away from your people, because that's what it is, it's evil. And God, you've already dealt with evil once when you crucified it on the cross, that when you rose again and you provided salvation and love and forgiveness and victory over death itself. So God, as we eagerly await your second coming, as we don't know the hour or the day in which you come, may we be ready May we be faithful. May we not be afraid, but be courageous simply by humbling ourselves before you, by trusting you with what we don't know, and then obeying you with what we do know. We commit our lives to you. And God, as we eagerly await, may we spread your good news each and every day. In your son's name we pray, amen. I hope that you found this message encouraging. If you'd like to have a deeper conversation, feel free to put a comment in the video description or to reach out to us at missiongrovechurch.com. And we'd love to connect with you, whether it's talking about the future, talking about end times, or talking about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Let me know. Let's connect. Have a great day and God bless.